Amen. For those of us who are his children, we are alive because he is alive. And that's what the gospel message is all about. It is about dead sinners who are walking around very much alive physically, but who are spiritually dead, being raised to newness of life because of what Jesus has done. And we will look more at that today. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. We're continuing our series on the Trinity, deep things delighting in the triune God. And today we're going to look at God the Father and see how he relates to sinners like us. There are two kinds of people here today. As we will see in the parable, there are younger brothers and there are older brothers. Some people here are not yet born again. You're not a Christian and you try to get to God like the younger brother does in this story. And some of you are here are not Christians yet and you try to get to God like the older brother does. But most of you, I think, are Christians, your disciples, and yet you still function in your relationship with God like the younger brother does or like the older brother. Who are you? Think about that as we look at God's word today. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, thank you that your son is alive. It is real. Look what mercy has done it because it saved me, raised me up from the deadness of my sin, raised many others like that here today. We're a testimony to your transforming grace, God. And there are people that don't know you today. And I pray that by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit as they hear the gospel, that you would save them and wake them up, raise them up from the deadness of their sins, that they could be a testimony of your grace as well. Help us today, Father, as we look at your word to understand how much you love us and to believe it. Would you do that today? We ask by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 15, this is one of Jesus' famous parables. It's a story about a son who squanders his father's wealth and then comes to his senses after he's broke and then desires to return to his father. There are a few misconceptions, though, about this parable, parable, typically called the parable of the prodigal son. There are a few misconceptions that I want to clear up before we begin. And the first is that it is commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. That's how most people know it. In fact, most Bibles have a little heading before this section. You probably do in your Bible. I do in mine. It says the parable of the prodigal son. But this parable is not just about one son. It's about both sons in the passage. It's about the younger brother and it's about the older brother. But even more important than that, this parable is about the father in the story. This parable is about God the father and how he relates to sinners like us. I think the New English translation, the Net Bible, gets the heading right because it calls this section the parable of the compassionate father. Second misconception is that most people think that the word prodigal means lost or wayward because we've heard of prodigal sons. Pray for my prodigal son. That's not what the word prodigal means. Prodigal means recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. And we'll see in this parable that one son is a prodigal. He does waste his father's inheritance in a faraway land. But the other son, the older brother who stays home, 
wastes what he has of his father at home. But more importantly, the father in this story is recklessly extravagant with his mercy and grace and compassion and forgiveness. I'm indebted to a chapter in a book by Ed Clowney, the late Ed Clowney, preaching Christ and all of Scripture. In the chapter titled, Sharing the Father's Welcome, he underscores the importance of not just seeing two sons here, but more importantly, that this parable is about the father. And it shaped my understanding of this. In recent years, Tim Keller has written a book called The Prodigal God. I've not read, but he admits that he is freely building on Clowney's work. So maybe we'll do The Prodigal God in Grace Seminary in the fall, perhaps. But I'm indebted to Ed Clowney in his understanding, and it just made the lights go off for me for Luke chapter 15. So let's get into the story now where we'll see this big idea emerge. God relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. God the Father relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. For all you people who love alliteration, those R's and those P's are for you. This parable that Jesus tells us will highlight the links that God the Father will go to in order to find and restore wayward children. And both sons in this story are wayward. Both are prodigals. One wastes his father's inheritance in a faraway land. That's the younger brother. The older brother wastes what he has of the father at home. But the father seeks both of them out relentlessly. And then he recklessly showers both of them with his mercy and with his grace. But in order to understand this parable, we've got to get the context. Who was Jesus talking to when he told this parable? Look at Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 through 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Understand what's happening here. The dregs of society are gathering around Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners want to be around Jesus. Maybe you've heard the expression, they were sweating like a sinner in church. You ever heard that? Luke 15, the worst of the worst were clamoring to be around Jesus, but they weren't sweating it out. They wanted to be around him. Why? Because Jesus welcomed the worst of the worst, and these people were the worst of the worst. No one liked tax collectors, and things haven't changed, have they? How many of you have already filed your taxes this year, and you filed it with joy? How many of you invited Uncle Sam to your house to eat dinner and to personally thank him for taking your money? Things haven't changed. And the tax collectors, the people that everyone hated, are gathering around Jesus. Jesus is eating with the down and out. He's eating with people that society does not like. And he was full of grace and compassion toward them. And this drives the religious leaders nuts. They comment that Jesus is eating with and welcoming sinners. You have to read verse 2 like Greg did with that condescending tone of voice. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. What the religious leaders did not know is that they were just as much a sinner as the tax collector and the prostitute and the down and out. 
So Jesus does what he does best. He tells them a story, a parable, to teach them a lesson about how gracious and how merciful and how compassionate God the Father is to fallen sinners, which includes all of us. If you're visiting and you haven't been at Grace very long, you, you must understand this about Grace Baptist Church. This is a church full of sinners. If you don't understand that, then you will be unnecessarily disappointed. Because we will fail you. We will drop the ball. We won't call when we're supposed to. We won't show up when you expect us. We will mess up here. Because everyone that comes here is a sinner. The only perfect person here is Jesus. You've got to understand that about grace or you will be unnecessarily disappointed. We are all jacked up and messed up by sin and only Jesus is the perfect one. So we're in good company as we listen to this story. Look at verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. The younger son here in this parable is like the typical American teenager. He hates his home life. The only thing he likes about home is his father's cash. Notice what he says in verse 12. He tells his father, give me. Isn't that the teenage mantra? Give me, give me, give me. And What does the younger brother want? He wants his portion of his father's inheritance. In the ancient Near East, it was common to divide your inheritance between your children. It was the custom to give two-thirds of your property, tools, land, cattle, etc. to the oldest son. And then if there's another son, a third of the property would go to the younger son. And that's what's happening here. The younger son demands that his father give him his portion of the inheritance. Now, notice a few things here. First, the inheritance would not be divided up until the father died. So this was extremely rude and dishonoring of the younger son. Basically, the younger son is saying this, Dad, I want you dead. I want your things, not you. Just drop dead, Dad, and give me what's rightfully mine. It's mind-blowing in this culture. But even more mind-blowing is the second thing we should notice, is that the father gives his son what he wants. He doesn't protest. There's a lesson here. God often lets us go our own way. God often lets us have our own way, even though it will be harmful to us. If we want something bad enough, God will let us have it. If we say to God, I don't want you, I want this thing or that thing more than I want you, then God will often let us have it. And that's exactly what's happening with the younger son, because he demands property. The word property here is the Greek word bios. It means land, property. Land was extremely important to the Jewish people. This was the land that God had promised to his chosen people. Land was their life. It's like the musical Oklahoma, if you've seen it. 
There's a song in there that I remember having to sing as a young Oki. I think I even played it on the harpsichord in a play in second grade. It went like this. We know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. And when we say, yay, a yippee ki yay, we're saying you're doing fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A, Oklahoma, okay. That's the situation here. My wife just cringed. That's the situation here. The people belong to the land. Their identity, their livelihood is wrapped up in the land. So the father has to sell his land, give up his identity and his life to give his son his portion. The son was basically saying, tear your life up for me, dad. Rip yourself apart and give me what I want. And the father did it. So the son takes the cattle, the tools, the land rights, sells them, converts them into cash, and now his wallet is thick. He's loaded. He's rolling in the Benjamins, if you will. And what does he do? He heads off to Vegas, baby. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. He's living it up. It's party time. Picture him saying to all those gathered around him in the bar, another round on me, guys. That's what the younger son is doing. It's party time. He's going crazy. This is Mardi Gras plus Las Vegas plus Atlantic City all rolled into one. And then we'll learn later in verse 30 from the older brother that the younger son has been spending some of his money on prostitutes. Obviously, word is spreading. It's on Facebook, and the family back home has heard. The younger son is living it up, and he's living it up with prostitutes. But soon, as always is the case when we chase after the pleasures of sin, the younger brother will start paying the high cost of low living Verse 14 says that after he spent everything and was broke, a severe famine broke out in the land. You see, it's one thing to be broke. It's a whole other thing to be broke in a famine. The, the price of gas is up. Milk costs more. Groceries cost more. And the younger brother has nothing. And so what does he do? He gets a job, as verse 15 says, taking care of pigs. His situation is now terrible. It's not terrible because he's a pig farmer now and he would be standing in mud and pig feces every day. His job is not bad because it's a dirty job. His job is bad because, one, he is a Jew and pigs were considered unclean according to Leviticus 11. Jews were not allowed to eat pigs. So even being around pigs means that the younger brother is far from God. But his job is bad, secondly, because the pigs were eating better than he was. Look at verse 16. It says, And he was hoping to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He was so hungry that pig food looked appetizing. He has hit the proverbial rock bottom. Ed Clowney describes his situation. Every bond with his father's house was broken. 
the prodigal was an alien, far from home, estranged, lost, unclean. And where does this state of brokenness lead him? It leads him to repentance. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Where did repentance start? Not in his heart. Repentance started in his stomach. He's hungry, physically in pain. Sometimes the depths of our physical brokenness become the catalyst to spark repentance in our heart. Sometimes God lets us get so low, sometimes God lets us get so low physically that we despair enough to come back to Him. That's important for us to see because where does the younger brother's mind go to when he hits rock bottom? Does it go back to the bars and to the parties? Does it go back to all the women he's been sleeping with? Does he start reminiscing about how great all the parties were? No. His mind does not drift back to the pool tables. His mind does not drift back to the darts. His mind does not drift back to the peanuts and the pretzels and the nice German beer on tap at the pub. His mind goes back to his family. His mind does not go back to the pool table. His mind goes back to the family dinner table. The younger brother is a picture of the tax collectors and the sinners, the prostitutes, the down and out, the dregs of society. Those people that have gathered around Jesus as he tells this parable. They were paying the high cost of low living and now they want relief from the pleasures of sin because the promise that sin made to them, couldn't deliver. And that's the case with the younger brother too. The younger brother reasons that his father's servants have plenty to eat, and yet he's dying of starvation, he says in verse 17. So he determines to go home to ask his father to forgive him. His brokenness has led him to repentance. So he will go home, as we'll see in a moment in verse 21, and tell his father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Will you just hire me back on as one of your servants? Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is a beautiful picture of the compassion that God has when sinners turn to him. God the Father relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. 
the younger son returns to his father. And the father took off running to him. The father relentlessly pursues his rebellious prodigal son. This is staggering because in the ancient Near East, older men did not run, especially rich ones like this man. Those in Israelite culture would not run. They were too dignified to run. Children would run around. Slaves and servants would run, but not the older men. The father defies all cultural norms and runs to his son. He rolls up the long fancy garment that he is wearing and he takes off running, relentlessly pursuing this rebellious prodigal. In fact, I think the father was looking for his son. He's out there every day scanning the horizon, hoping his son will return. And when he sees him, verse 20 says that he felt compassion. This is the Greek word, splachnois. It, it speaks of, of our gut, our insides, our bowels. Like, like when you fall in love or someone breaks your heart. You don't feel it in your heart, do you, really? Where do you feel it? You feel it in your gut. That's where the father feels it. He feels compassion. His gut, his feelings, his emotions are moving him to relentlessly pursue his rebellious prodigal son. And when the, verse, the son came close, verse 20 says that the father embraced him and kissed him. It's an interesting Greek phrase. It means literally hanging on his neck. The father is hugging and kissing and would not let go of his son. Hanging there, kissing and loving on his wayward son. A few observations. This is an honor-shame culture. The father is under no obligation whatsoever to welcome his son home. The son has disgraced the father. The son has disgraced the family. It would be expected, yes, that the son apologize before the father even responds to him. But even then, even if the son is repentant, the father was under no obligation to welcome him back into the family because of what he has done. And yet, the father embraces the son before he repents. That's compassion, gut-like, fatherly love. It's the way that God loves. It's the way that God loves all of humanity. Understand this, Grace. There is nothing that you can ever, ever do to make God love you any less. Nothing. Nothing you can do changes the way that God feels about you. God loves all people. God loves all of his creation, but specifically he loves his adopted sons and daughters who have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. And he loves each one of his children as if we were his own children. In verse 21, we see the son owns up to his sin and he repents when he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But what the father does in verse 22 is even more staggering. 
He says, quick, run, get the best robe you can find. Put it on my son. Go get a ring and put it on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Kill the cow. Fire up the steaks and the burgers. We're going to party because my baby boy has returned home. He was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he is found. Why does the father do this after he has been shunned and disgraced? Because it's a picture of God the father. And God the father relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. Here in the story, the father is recklessly pardoning and forgiving his rebellious prodigal son. Here, the father is being a prodigal. The father is recklessly extravagant with his love. The father is recklessly extravagant with his mercy, his grace, compassion, and forgiveness. The father is reckless and goes crazy with his mercy and with his grace. It's a picture of how God the father deals with sinners like us. In order to understand that, Let's unpack a few cultural issues so we can understand just how amazing the father's reckless love is here. First, the appearance. The son would have been covered in dry mud and pig feces. He would have stunk to high heaven. Ever been around a homeless person and their body odor is so overwhelming you want to vomit and throw up? That's the son here. And yet the father is literally hanging on his neck, kissing him. He doesn't say go take a shower first, son. It's a picture of how God deals with us when we come to him. He says you can't clean up. You come dirty, stinky, smelling of sin, and you come to me. And because of Jesus, I will love you and I will kiss your neck. Amazing, reckless love. Secondly, the robe. The robe was likely the father's best robe, his most special robe. And here he takes it and he places it on his filthy, smelly, dirty son. It's a picture of what God the Father does for us when he gives us the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, when we repent and trust in Jesus. He places that robe of righteousness on us. Amazing, reckless love. And then the ring. The ring was the father's seal. When a letter was sent, it would be sealed with a piece of wax. As the wax was still hot, the the king or the father would place his ring down into the wax to leave the impression. By giving the ring to his son, the father is saying, Your family, you belong here. You're my son. It's what God does when he adopts us into his family because of what Jesus has done for us. It's amazing, reckless love. And then the shoes. This was significant because the son said that he would be treated like a servant of his father. Servants didn't wear sandals or shoes. And the father places shoes on his son's feet and says, Your family. There is intimacy here, son, that I share with you, that I don't share with my servants and my slaves that work for me. The father is saying, You are my son. It's the same thing. God says to us as his children, you don't work to get my favor. You have my favor because of Jesus. It's amazing, reckless love. And then the feast. The father says to kill the cow, fire up the grill. It's time for burgers and steaks and tri-tip. This was very significant because meat was rare. People didn't grill out like we do every day. This was a very big deal. This was going to be a celebration 
It's amazing, reckless love. But notice how reckless the father is with his grace. He asks no question. He doesn't ask where his son had been. He doesn't guilt him into confession. He doesn't bring up the fact that he heard his son was living it up with prostitutes. No questions, just recklessly extravagant love. It is a picture of how God the Father deals with sinners like us. God the Father relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. That's the gospel. But the story doesn't end here. There is another brother. The older brother is as much a part of this story as the younger brother is. And I will argue that the older brother is just as much a prodigal. He has wasted the goodness of his father at home by not receiving and relishing in his father's extravagant love. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother is out in the field, presumably working for his father. When he hears the DJ and the bass pumping, and the helium tank squeaking as balloons are inflated, he sees the bounce house moving, he smells the burgers So he asks one of his servants what's going on and the servant explains that his younger brother has returned home and the father is throwing him a party. And the older brother is disgusted. He can't believe it. He's angry. He won't even go inside. He's sulking out in the field. He's seething with anger. The younger brother who squandered everything and returns doesn't get a beating when he returns home. He gets a celebration. The older brother assumed that the ring, the robes, the shoes, the cow, and the party should have been his. The older brother in the story is a picture of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who thought that they were better than everyone else. Were better than the sinners and the down and out and the dregs of society. Better than the prostitutes. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was welcoming sinners, eating with them. But in verse 28, we see the father go out into the field to talk with his son. It's another reminder that God the Father relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. The father pursues his bitter, rebellious son. The father goes to him as he sits in his bitterness. Ed Clowney describes the older brother this way. 
that bitter son is farther from home there in the field than the prodigal was in the pig pen. He has no love for the father. Keeping his father's orders is drudgery. Working for him is slavery. His real pleasure is not with his father. Verse 29 shows us that the older brother viewed his relationship with his father as slavery. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes... You killed the fattened calf for him. Notice how the older brother addressed his dad. He doesn't call him father. He says, look, how dare you spend your money like this. The older brother disgraces his father by reacting this way and by refusing to go into the party. The older brother is so bitter that in verse 30, he doesn't even call his brother by name or even refer to him as his brother. He simply says in verse 30, This son of yours. But again, notice how the father reacts. Not with condemnation, but with a gentle rebuke. Look at verse 31 and 32. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. A gentle rebuke, a loving rebuke, but a much needed rebuke. And the father calls him son, reminding him of his place in the family. This is grace. It's forgiveness. Even though the the son slandered his father and publicly disgraced him, the father relentlessly pursued him and recklessly pardoned him. The father relentlessly pursued the older brother, a rebellious prodigal who squandered the joy and the love that he could have been experiencing by viewing his relationship to his father as work, as slavery. The older brother has recklessly wasted his father's love. He's a prodigal too. And some of us view our relationship with God that way. It's work. It's drudgery. We feel like slaves. But notice there's a demand with the father's gentle, loving rebuke. He says, come to the feast. That's what he's telling the older brother. Come and celebrate with us. Your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost. And now he is found. And then it ends. Unfortunately for us, there's no verse 33. We don't know what happened. Did the older brother go celebrate? Jesus leaves it wide open because the older brother represents the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Those people who thought they were good, that they were righteous. Jesus wants them to decide what they will do. Will they turn to Jesus just like the down and outers, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes? Will they turn to him or will they remain in their self-righteousness? We saw two sons in this story. But this story is really about the father. It's a parable that could be titled the parable of the prodigal father. Why? Because God the father relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. 
I think Jesus told this parable because there are two kinds of sons in the world, if you will. We all try one of two ways to get what we love, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, this is how you deal with God, to find your joy and your happiness. And even if you are a Christian, many of us still act like younger brothers or older brothers in our relationship with God. As sinners, as fallen human beings, this is how all of us relate to God. Some of us are younger brothers, some are older brothers. Some of us have not been born again yet. We're not a Christian, and yet we work towards God like the older brother, thinking we're good enough. And some of us are younger brothers, living in the the filth of our sin. It's time to repent and trust in Jesus today. But some of us are Christians, and we still act like younger brothers, and we still act like older brothers. What Jesus does in this parable is he redefines sin. Jesus redefined sin in this parable, and we see that in both brothers. The younger brother's sin kept him from God. His sin is obvious. The older brother's righteousness kept him from God. The older brother was saying, God, you owe me because I've been good. God, you owe me because I'm not like him. Both brothers are lost and apart from God. Both are alienated from God. One brother is lost in his badness, and one brother is lost in his goodness. One brother is lost in destructive self-centeredness, and one is lost in moralistic goodness. Some of us are like the younger brother. We think we have to clean up before we come to God. That's what the younger brother did. He tried to earn his way back to the father. He said, treat me as one of your hired servants. I'll earn my way back to you. I'll try and be good enough. And some of us do this with God. If I can just be good enough, obey enough, read my Bible enough, pray enough, then God will like me. And and then I'll, I'll work my way back to you. Some of us have lived in the muck and mire of the world like the younger brother. Drunkenness, sexual morality, pornography, drugs, fighting, gossip, slander, clamor. You fill in the blank and you feel dirty and you don't feel like God could ever love you. So you think you must somehow clean up your act before he will accept you. What God does is he comes to us in the pig pen. We're filthy, we're, we're filthy with sin, we're smelly, ugly, dirty, and covered with the crap of this world, and Jesus comes and rescues us. We need to repent of our damnable bad works. We're born sinners, we've offended a holy God, we need to repent of that. God the Father sent Jesus, and by doing that, he's showing that he relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. God relentlessly pursued us younger brothers when we were steeped in sin, and he did that by sending Jesus to die in our place, and God raised him from the dead and offers us life. We must repent and trust in Jesus and come with the empty hands of faith and say, I believe. And then God recklessly pardons us and covers us with the robe of his righteousness and puts the ring on our finger and says, you're family, you're my son now, you're my daughter. Some of us are like the older brother. We think that because we've never done all the bad things that we're okay with God. We've never done drugs or slept around with people. We've been in the church our whole life. 
and we try desperately to earn God's love through our works for him. Listen, he is not impressed with you. He is not impressed with your Bible study. He's not impressed with the fact that you pray two hours a day. He is only impressed with his son Jesus, his perfect, sinless life. That's the only thing that impresses God. Don't think that you can impress him by what you do. He is impressed by what Jesus has already done for you. Only Jesus' perfect, sinless life impresses God. And yet, some of us try hard. Oh, God will love me because I'm not like the younger brother. We older brothers think we're good or we're better than others. But we need to repent of our damnable good works. As the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. A little soft for an English translation because the Hebrew is menstrual rags. All of our righteous acts and attempts to gain favor with a holy God are like bloody tampons in God's eyes. Only Jesus' perfect life gives us access to a holy God. And God sought us out when we were in the pig pen of our sin. And God sought us out when we were in the field of our self-righteousness. God made the first move to reconcile us to himself. Sin has to be punished. Either you take the penalty for your sin or you let Jesus do it for you. You take the penalty for your bad works. You take the penalty for your good works. Somebody has to pay. Jesus came to take the blame for you. It's proof that God relentlessly pursues and recklessly pardons rebellious prodigals. And we see it most clearly at the cross. It costs Jesus because grace always costs somebody something. And it cost Jesus his life. But God raised him up from the dead. And he wants to raise you up from the pig pen of your sin. Or pull you out of the field of your self-righteousness. So that you can be restored to a holy God. And you get restored to the Father. If you're not a believer. By repentance. Admitting you've broken his laws. Owning up to that. And then trusting. Coming with the empty hands of faith. And saying I trust and believe. That Jesus lived the life. That I could never live. And Jesus died the death that I deserve. The Father loves you. He has come to you, younger brothers, in the pig pen of sin by sending Jesus to the cross. He has come to you, older brothers, in the field of self-righteousness by sending Jesus to the cross. The Father is seeking you today. He is scanning the horizon, waiting for you to come home. He loves you. You can't get cleaned up to earn his love. You can't be good enough to earn his love. It's there. It's free. Own up to your sins and run into the arms of the Father. He wants to kiss and hang on your neck. God is the prodigal. He has been recklessly extravagant with his grace and mercy. He has spent everything for you. Let him kiss your neck today. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your extravagant love that you've poured out on us, that you've shown through your son, Jesus. God, many of us try to earn our way to you. We view our relationship with you as slavery and drudgery. Somehow you'll be pleased with us if we just do the right thing. And some of us think that you are pleased with us because we do the right thing. We think we earn our favor with you by what we do and not what Jesus has done. Help us to remember that it is finished. And God, some of us are just stuck in the muck and mire of sin and we feel like we're too dirty to come home. For both the younger brothers and the older brothers here, Father, would you help us to see how much you love us and how much you receive us because of what Jesus has done for us. He paid it all. We owe everything to him and to him alone.